So here we are, Black Friday. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> we better hurry up so we can get out and stand in line. No, thank you. They still do that? I imagine they do, but why not just wait until Cyber Monday? True. <laughs> What's the fun in that, though? The fun in that is you get to sleep in <laughs> and not wait in long lines. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, I think we have a lot to cover tonight, so we'll get to it. What are you talking about tonight? I am talking about a man who was featured on America's Most Wanted for murdering his entire family. Oh. And that man's name is John List. John? List. List? List. Hmm. Okay. My S's and T's are very hard for me to... <laughs> L-I-S-T. Yes. Okay. Like, I have a Christmas list for Black Friday. There. Okay, there, there you go. <laughs> Very current. Yes. <laughs> John List was born on September 17th, 1925 to John and Alma List. His father was 66 while his mother was 38 at the time of his birth. Wow. Yeah. Big age difference. Well, it's scary is when did they get married? Yeah, How old was she when they got married? That's what I was wondering, too. <laughs> I did not see any information on that. Yeah. But I have a feeling I don't want to know. You're right, yeah. He didn't have any siblings aside from a paternal half-brother and half-sister. In 1944, at the age of 85, John's father passed away. A year before his father's passing, John had graduated from Bay City Central High School. He was never popular in school, but did have a handful of friends. People just said that he was always just in the background of things. Well, that's sad. Yeah. But I know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Before killing his mother, wife, and three teenage children, John List seemed to have been the perfect son, husband, and father. He was an accountant at a nearby bank and lived in a 19-room mansion that included a ballroom and a marble fireplace. Jeez. Yeah. Very nice life. Yeah. The family attended church every Sunday as devout Lutherans, and John even taught Sunday school. In 1971, John had lost his job at the bank, and he couldn't even bear to tell his family about the loss of income. He spent his days at the train station reading the newspaper and secretly taking money from his mother's bank accounts in order to pay the mortgage. Wonder what the mortgage on a 19 room mansion with a ballroom is. Yeah, I don't want to know. <laughs> well, in 1971, too. Yeah. On November 9th, 1971, John used a 9mm semi automatic handgun and a 22 caliber revolver to shoot and kill his 46 year old wife, Helen, 84 year old mother, Alma, 16 year old daughter, Patricia. 13-year-old son, Frederick, and 15-year-old son, John Jr., inside their Westfield, New Jersey, Victorian mansion, also known as Breeze Knoll. Jeez. 
His wife, Helen, was first after John had sent the children off to school, and then he shot her in the kitchen while she sipped on her morning coffee. That's disturbing. Yes. He then went up to the third floor and murdered his mother in her bed. He killed his 16-year-old daughter, Patricia, and 13-year-old son, Frederick, when they had both came home from school. Then he made himself a sandwich for lunch, drove to the bank to close his wife's and mother's accounts, canceled mail and milk deliveries, and notified the schools that the kids would be absent for some time. After completing those tasks, he went to cheer on his only surviving son, 15-year-old John Jr., at his high school soccer game. What? (laughs) Yeah, pretty messed up. How messed up is that? And of course, once the game ended, he drove his son home and shot him in the chest. Jesus. I just think it's really weird that he acted like it was normal to go to the soccer game even. Yeah, I was thinking that he just lost it after losing his job. And for whatever reason, he went mental and decided to kill his family. Yeah. I mean, I was assuming maybe himself, but this is beyond that. Yeah, pretty crazy. He left his mother's body in the attic apartment and placed his wife's and kids' bodies on sleeping bags in the ballroom. The bodies weren't discovered until December 7th. It was reported that when police had entered the home, religious hymns were playing loudly on the intercom. Wow. Yeah. And I did also read that the reason why police had gone over there is because neighbors were getting suspicious about the lights burning, and I think they heard the music from outside, but I'm not 100% sure. And I'm assuming you're going to tell us where he was at this time? Or where they don't know where he was? I will get to that. Okay. At the scene was a five-page letter that John wrote to his pastor in an attempt to explain why he killed his loved ones. He felt the pastor would understand the most. John said financial hardships were part of the motivation, along with the fear that his family was falling away from their Christian faith. Quote, At least I'm certain they all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is that it isn't easy and was only done after much thought, end quote. Scary to think of how much thought he put into this. Yeah, my thought exactly. He still wasn't willing to deal with the consequences of his actions. He cleaned the crime scene and used scissors to remove his image from every photo in the mansion. Okay, so he's just totally lost it. Yeah. I want to say, oh, he's going to do that make sure they go to heaven, but then seems like he should sacrifice himself too. Yeah. So he can go to hell. (laughs) John's car had been found at John F. Kennedy Airport, and from there, the trail went cold for 18 years. What? I didn't know if you had anything to say to that. (laughs) Not sure what to say to that. (laughs) I don't either. New Jersey prosecutors had an expert forensic artist, Frank Bender, create a physical bust of John List to look at 
what it was believed he looked like aged. When America's Most Wanted aired the story on May 21st, 1989, 22 million saw the sculpture and tips came pouring in. Wow. One tip from a woman in Virginia was that her next-door neighbor, Robert Clark, had a strong resemblance to the bust and that he was also an accountant and attended church. Police went to Clark's home and spoke to his wife. As it had turned out, John changed his identity and moved to Colorado under the alias Robert Clark. Since his alias worked, he kept it and moved to Richmond, Virginia. It's amazing how easily somebody can disappear, or at least back then. Yeah. And it's amazing to me how he did all that to his family that he allegedly loved so much and didn't want them to lose their faith, and then goes and starts another family. That's just totally messed up. Guys, yeah. completely mental. Yeah. Around nine days after the episode aired, police in Virginia arrested John List on June 1st, 1989. During his trial in 1990, defense lawyers tried arguing that John suffered PTSD from his service in World War II and Korea. Expert psychologists, on the other hand, believed he was going through a midlife crisis. But as prosecution pointed out, that is not an excuse to kill five innocent people. Neither is PTSD. Yeah. I don't know if they were just trying to pull the insanity blame. Oh yeah, they're just trying to pull anything to get them. Less time or off the hook. Right. The jury found John guilty and he was sentenced to five life terms in a New Jersey prison. During an interview in 2002, John stated that the reason he did not kill himself after he murdered his entire family was because he believed it would have prevented him from going to heaven. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Isn't the fact that he murdered those people kind of like, you're not going to heaven? Or is, yeah. he, is it okay to, to do that and then ask for forgiveness? I will get to... <laughs> he does explain... Quote, explain that. Right. He believed he would reunite with his wife, children, and mother in the afterlife where there would be no longer any pain or suffering. He said, quote, hopefully they would go to heaven and then maybe I would have a chance later, confess my sins to God and get forgiveness, end quote. Well, that just opens up the door for anybody to do anything they want and ask for forgiveness. Yep. I wonder how a priest would react if someone went in to confession and said, hey, I murdered my entire family. I would like forgiveness. Because they can't, I don't really know how that works, but they don't report it to the police, right? Isn't it like in their beliefs that they can't do that? As far as I recall, yeah. They just have to. Gosh. Then do they go to hell for not reporting it? (laughs) (laughs) Like who do they confess to? Messed up system. Yeah. At the age of 82, John List died in prison in 2008 due to complications from pneumonia. Eerily enough, the date was March 21st, 2008, which happened to be Good Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's weird. Yeah. Of course, when people were interviewed about John, they all said how they couldn't believe he was capable of that, and he was a quiet, nice guy. How it always seems to be about people like this. Yeah, the quiet, nice guys are always 
Always the ones. Yep. Well, don't people call you quiet, nice guy? Hey, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is true. It's I don't think I've ever heard an interview where people were like, oh, yeah, I totally could see that happening. It's always <laughs> like, wow, I didn't think he was capable or they seemed like such a nice family. <laughs> like, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Yeah, that's true. Not all the crazies act crazy. Yeah. The mansion in New Jersey that the family lived in burned down several months later with the cause remaining unknown, but it was suspected as arson. A new house was built on the property years later. The murders haunted the area where the mansion once stood with children refusing to walk past the property and not even wanting to live on the same street. I'm surprised there hasn't, as far as I've seen, there hasn't been any speculation of it being haunted. Yeah, I was curious if the house hadn't burnt down, how it would have been. Yeah. Surprised they, they don't even want to live on the same street. Yeah, I wonder if it's just like, I don't know, maybe it's stories that are told or if they yeah. think that the street is cursed or something. I have no idea what goes through children's heads. Right. Well, that was gruesome. Yeah, very sad. Again, no words. Sad that even though he did go to prison, that he was able to live his life. Yeah. I am surprised that as far as I read, they didn't even consider the death sentence for the fact that it was mass murder and five people. Maybe they didn't have it in the state at the time. That's true. I do forget that. It depends on the state. Yeah. So did he ever say the reason why he cut his face out of all the pictures? I don't think he directly said, but it was implied to try to baffle the police. Although I don't know how that's really doing anything, considering you're the only surviving member and missing. Right. <laughs> like all things point to you. Just another thing just to show he was completely off his rocker. Yeah. I would also like to know that if he didn't lose his job, would he still at some point have lost his mind like that? Yeah, you got to wonder if that was just something that added to the tipping point. Yeah. But something else would have came along. Yeah. I wonder if the whole thing about saving his family was just... uh you know, a bullshit excuse. Yeah, that is a good point. Like him just saying that to make people feel bad for him in some weird way. Yeah. Or like sympathize with the fact that he committed murder. Yeah, he just decided to kill them for whatever reason and then had to make up some excuse in his own mind. Yeah. I feel like that always seems to be the excuse when there are people that murder their family. Like, oh, well, I murdered them to save them. You wonder if they come up with that before they killed them or after. Yeah. Like you said he was thinking about this for a while. Yeah. Well, that's what he says. Yeah. It was thought out. I feel like that doesn't really help your case, bud, the fact that you right. thought this yeah. out. This is PTSD, but you were planning this? Yeah. Right. But that's all I have on that messed up story. Yeah, that is pretty messed up. Uh, it really bothers me that people like that get to go to prison and then just live their life out. Yeah. I mean, well, like you said, if they don't have the death penalty, what else are they supposed to do? 
I am hoping since he died of complications from pneumonia that it was very, very painful yeah. death. Yeah, they probably gave him morphine. And... Would they though? Probably. I would yeah. hope not. Make him suffer. No, they make it a little cushy in there for them. I think it is interesting that they did like a physical bust sculpture of him to like show his age progression and not like a sketch. I imagine they wanted to get that 3D effect. I think it is interesting though that he was trying to remove every image of his face and family photos, but they still had a way to, like they obviously knew what he looked like for them to do the age progression. I wonder if that's why he did it. He thought he would try to erase all the pictures of himself so they wouldn't have anything to go on. Yeah. Well, but why take the time to... Just destroy the pictures. Yeah. yeah no, like, yeah, he'll, he'll be mental. Just <laughs> anybody who cuts <laughs> faces out of pictures is just mental. So creepy. Yeah. Cause <laughs> like you had a nice marble fireplace. Why didn't you just throw all the pictures in there? Yeah. And I want to know what he did with the clippings. Like, did he take it with him? Yeah. A bunch of, yeah, that's just bizarre. So, what is your story for the night? Well, tonight I thought I would wrap up things on our discussion of time slips. Yes. At least for now. Once again, just a recap. A time slip is an alleged event where a person or persons unknowingly travels through time for a brief period before returning to their present time. As I mentioned last week and the week prior... The book An Adventure was published around 1911 and was written by two English women, Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. In the book, the two women discuss their experience while visiting the Palace of Versailles in France on August 10, 1901, where it is believed they experienced a time slip or some type of paranormal event. 1901 is hard to imagine. That time period for me. (laughs) Before your time. Way before my time. (laughs) Before I get to their story, I have to give a little bit of history, especially if you are wondering what the hell is the Palace of Versailles. Yeah, I was wondering and I was going to (laughs) ask, but I do not know how to pronounce that. So I'll try to make it as brief as possible and give you just enough to give you some perspective of their story. So we're not having a French history lesson. (laughs) The Palace of Versailles is actually a large royal complex covering around three square miles. Oh, wow. Along with the main palace, there are multiple chateaus, mini palaces. Oh. Lavish gardens, statues, fountains, wooded areas, etc. So a big complex and a big plot of land. It was built and expanded over about a century by the French monarchy before they were overthrown during the French Revolution. Not sure if you learned about the French Revolution in school. (laughs) Probably don't remember. Vaguely. The revolution was the result of growing class inequality. And if you see the lavish, overindulgent palaces and grounds, you'll understand why the common folk were a little pissed off. Yeah. But that's a different story. 
As I mentioned, they visited on August 10, 1901. Now, August 10 is an important day in French history because it was on that day in 1792 when an insurrection from the revolutionaries took place that resulted in the fall of the monarchy. Now the palace and grounds are just a tourist attraction. Hmm. Marie Antoinette was the queen at the time. Her husband, King Louis XVI, ruled France at the time of the revolution. Unlucky for him. Yeah. Before the two were beheaded, she took a liking to living in one of the chateaus on the grounds, what's known as the Petit Trianon. Hmm. Petite because I think it only had something like 20 plus rooms and around 18,000 square feet of living space. Only? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There is also the Grand Trianon, which is much bigger than the Petite, but still tiny compared to the actual main palace. Jeez. (laughs) Which has like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rooms. That's crazy. Like, I can't even imagine. Yeah. It's a lot of cleaning. Yeah. (laughs) They probably have slave labor for that. That's true. Okay, so back to Miss Moberly and Miss Jourdain. They originally wrote the book under pseudonyms. Not sure why, but it might have been because of their status. Yeah. Both women were well-educated academics. Miss Moberly's father was headmaster at Winchester School and later Bishop of Salisbury. She became the first principal at St. Hugh's College in Oxford. Miss Jourdain's father was a vicar of the Church of England, and she was hired by Miss Moberly to work as an assistant at St. Hugh's. Oh, wow. Their real identities as the authors of the book were not made public until 1931. Jeez. By their choice or? Yeah, I'm not sure how that transpired. It is interesting that they didn't use their status as a selling point for the book. Yeah. Because, you know, this story is from two well-educated women. It's not like just two random women are telling this story. Well, I wonder if it would have affected their... Yeah, I'm assuming it would have been scandalous at the time. Yeah. In the book, they take a very analytical approach to their experience. Along with talking about what happened, they discuss the research they did to determine if what they saw actually existed at some time in history. Yeah. Of course, it's still all dependent on believing what they're saying. Yeah. It is noted at the beginning of the book that they both had an interest in the paranormal, even before they met, and that they did have other experiences throughout their lives. So I won't get into those but just a note if that has any bearing on the story. Yeah. Or bearing on your perception of this story. When they visited, they both saw things they thought were odd and felt emotionally distressed and anxious at times when they were on the grounds, but neither of them said anything to the other at the time. Hmm. It wasn't until a week later when Miss Moberly was writing about their visit that she said to Miss Jourdain, do you think that the Petit Trianon is haunted? And Miss Jourdain promptly said yes. She explained that she felt it when they met the two men. I'll explain that in a bit. Okay. And described her feeling of depression and anxiety. At that point, they didn't discuss it much further, 
And it wasn't until three months later when Miss Jourdain went to visit Miss Moberly that they discussed it again and soon realized that they had seen different things. That's interesting. Yeah. At that point, they decided they would separately write about the visit and then come back together and compare notes. That's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah. In the book, they share their separate accounts of the visit, but I will discuss them together and point out some of the differences that they were each unaware of at the time. Okay. It is a very detailed story, so I'm going to just pick out some of the highlights, but I am going to kind of step through their visit, so hopefully I don't go overboard and get too boring. No. (laughs) On that day in 1901, the two women visited the main palace, but weren't impressed. (laughs) So, (laughs) So they decided to walk through the gardens and go see the Petit Trianon. As I mentioned, the grounds are extensive and not easily navigated. Yeah. These days, there are probably a lot of signs for direction, but I'm guessing not the case back then. Yeah. I would hope that they have made signs by now unless they find it interesting that people are getting lost. Yeah. (laughs) They did both make a point to mention their knowledge of French history was lacking and only as extensive as what they remembered from school. As you can imagine, many people tried to discredit their story. And one of the arguments was that the two women made it up based on their knowledge of the history. But they both insisted that their expertise came afterwards during their investigation. So not really sure of the way they were going as they walked the grounds, they did eventually come upon the Grand Trianon. And unbeknownst to them, if they would have followed a grassy drive along the Grand, it would have led them right to the Petite. Oh. But instead, they crossed the drive and went up a lane. At this point, Miss Moberly saw a woman shaking a white cloth out of a window in a building on the corner of the path. She was surprised that Miss Jourdain had not called out to the woman asking for directions, but supposed Miss Jourdain must have known where she was going. Later, she found out that Miss Jourdain never saw the woman. Oh, that's got to be so weird. Yeah. I'm not sure if that would be too unusual, but I guess because of they were both right there, the woman's, you know, shaking this cloth. Yeah. You know, sheet or whatever, shaking it out or whatever, figuring how could she not have seen that. Well, why didn't she ask for direction? Yeah, I thought the same thing when I was reading that, but (laughs) it's like she's waiting for the other to make all of the decisions. Yeah. So, which is funny because she was Miss Jordan's boss. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what an assistant does. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't depend on that. They came to a three-way split in the path and seeing two men in the path directly ahead, they decided to go that way and ask for directions. They thought the men were gardeners because of some nearby equipment but said they appeared to be dignified men and were dressed in long grayish-green coats and wore small three-cornered hats. The men gave them directions to continue up the path they were on. Yeah. Miss Moberly described having a feeling of great depression come over her at this time, which she could not shake. Hmm. Somewhere along the path, 
Miss Jourdain saw what she described as a solidly built cottage with stone steps up to the door. A woman and a girl were standing in the doorway, and she thought the way they were dressed was unusual. The woman atop the steps seemed to be passing a jug down to the girl. Miss Jourdain said for a moment the woman and the girl paused as if in living picture, hmm. like a freeze frame. Yeah. One place I read somebody described it as uh, Madame Tassad wax figures. Oh <laughs> <laughs> so she comes up again. Uh, of course. <laughs> She's like the new Elizabeth Bathory in our yeah. <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Elizabeth, we haven't talked about her in ages. I know, it's been so long. <laughs> So she saw them in freeze frame, but then the two women had passed and she didn't see anything after that. So she's not sure what happened. They just kept walking? <laughs> well, they were just walking along and she saw this. Yeah. Miss Moberly did not see any of that. Do you think that they're not seeing certain things because it's only being shown to one of them or because they're just not observant? Well, that's what I was wondering about with the woman in the window. I can imagine... If you're walking with somebody, you're going to see some things that they don't see and they're going to see some things that you don't see. Yeah. Their feeling was that because they were in such close proximity and there weren't other people around, it yeah. was just them. And these things were happening fairly close to them. They couldn't understand how the other one did not see them. Yeah, that makes sense. At least the woman in the window, now this... It could have been a case of, you know, they didn't really talk about how close it was. Yeah. The other woman in the window shaking something, I figured that would catch your attention. Right. So that was kind of odd. This one might have been, yeah, the other one just didn't notice it. Yeah. Not to dismiss, I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I mean, just it's a legitimate question, right? Yeah. Miss Jourdain had a feeling that the path they were on was actually leading them away from the Petit Trianon and described the place as having a feeling of depression and loneliness about it. She said she began to feel like she was walking in her sleep. Huh. They reached a point where the path ended at a T, so they could go either left or right. Straight ahead within the woods, they saw a garden kiosk, so like a large gazebo yeah. with stone pillars. A man wearing a cloak and a large shady hat was sitting at the kiosk. He turned his head and he looked at them. There were some other things they talked about with him, but I won't get into that. Okay. Miss Moberly said at that point, everything suddenly looked unnatural and unpleasant. The trees looked flat and lifeless. No wind stirred the trees and it was intensely still. Hmm. She asked Miss Jordan which way they should go but she had the feeling that there was no way she was going to go left. So something about the left was bothering her. That's creepy. Yeah. Suddenly, Miss Moberly heard someone running toward them in breathless haste. Thinking it was the men from earlier, she turned, but nobody was there. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> she then perceived someone in the other direction, and a man suddenly appeared, which startled her. Valid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Jourdain remembered it as they heard a man running up behind them yelling for their attention. So that was what she saw. So she actually saw someone running up. Yes. He spoke with them excitedly in French. 
They could not pick up everything he was saying, but he seemed to be insisting that they take the path to the right. See, I feel like that's a bit of a dilemma considering she had a weird feeling about the left, but now the strange man is telling them to go to the right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would just turn back around and leave. Yeah, I don't know. I think Moberly said she was fine with that. Yeah. So they turned and headed to the right toward a small bridge. Miss Jordan said that she thanked the man and he ran off. <laughs> Miss Moberly said she turned to thank him as well, but the man was gone. That's so weird. Yeah. But the sound of close by running could be heard and then it abruptly stopped. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. They continued over the bridge that spanned a small ravine and on down the path that was overshadowed by trees on either side. They passed a narrow meadow of long grass before they finally came upon the Petite Trianon, which is a large rectangular chateau with a terrace on the north and west side. In the rough grass by the terrace, Miss Moberly saw there was a lady sitting, holding out a paper as though to look at it at arm's length. She supposed the woman was sketching. Mm. As they passed by her on her left, the woman saw them and turned to look at them full on. Miss Moberly looked at the lady, but some indescribable feeling made her turn away. She did say that she thought the woman was a tourist, but thought her dress was old-fashioned and rather unusual. Yeah. Miss Jordan said she did not see the woman at all, which again surprised Miss Moberly because the woman was in such close proximity to them. Yeah. Miss Jordan had noted that the area around the house was deserted. But as they were walking up to the terrace, she remembered pulling her skirt aside, having the feeling that someone was near and she was making room for them to pass. That's weird. Yeah. You know, I just have a sense that there's somebody around you. Yeah. And you kind of like step out of the way because you think. And I hate that feeling, yeah. especially <laughs> when there's no one behind yeah, me. <laughs> nobody there. They went up the steps of the terrace and Miss Moberly was beginning to feel as though they were walking in a dream. The stillness and oppressiveness were so unnatural, she said. She again saw the lady from behind out past the terrace. Yeah. A door by the terrace suddenly opened and a man came out. Banging the door behind him, he called to them that the way into the house was in the courtyard. And he offered to show them the way. Hmm, do you follow the strange man into the <laughs> <Yeah>. courtyard? <laughs> Can you imagine you're visiting a historic location and have a time slip and end up walking into somebody's house that's being lived in? <laughs> that would be so awkward. Imagine walking into the Borden house. Oh, heck no. <laughs> Ew, that'd be bad. <laughs> so they went around to the front of the house. They saw that they were near the first lane that they had been on. And Miss Moberly had wondered why the men had directed them around the long way rather than toward the house. Yeah. At that point, they talked about there being a wedding procession. I don't know if it was going in or out of the chateau. Yeah. But I think at that point, they were back in their time. Yeah. One of the things they researched during their investigation was the layout of the grounds. 
Over the generations of the monarchy, whomever was ruling at the time would occasionally hire architects, for instance, and have the grounds redone periodically. In the women's era in 1901 and beyond, the stone bridge in the ravine did not exist. Nor did the kiosk. That's weird. Yeah. Nor the cottage that Miss Jordan saw. It's always a mysterious cottage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At some point during their visit, Miss Jordan also had spotted a plow on the grounds, which was not there in 1901. Yeah. In 1908, they found an old map that showed a small bridge that appeared to be in the right position for that era. In 1905, a gardener of the grounds told them that no plow was kept at Trianon because there was no need for it. Farming was not done on the grounds. Yeah. In 1908, another gardener told them that the plow, like the type she described, which was believed to be used pre-revolution, was not likely to be seen anywhere in France at that time in the early 1900s. That's so weird. The women said they found information about a plow that was used during the reign of King Louis XVI's predecessor and preserved on the grounds before being sold off with all of the king's property after his execution. And they found an old map of 1783 that showed plowed land on the grounds. So there was farming being done during that era. That's so weird. In 1904, Miss Jordan found a picture resembling the type of cottage she had seen. And in 1908, her and a friend had found a cottage fitting the description on the grounds, but it was not in the right place where she had seen it in 1901. Hmm. But I guess that would show that that type of cottage could have existed somewhere else on the grounds if there was multiple of them. Yeah. Miss Moberly looked around and found numerous pictures, I imagine paintings, of Queen Marie Antoinette. And it was in 1902 when she found one that she felt most resembled the face of the woman she had seen that day sketching near the terrace. Jeez. In regards to the men they saw, in 1904, they were told by persons at Versailles that they could not have seen uniforms in the gray-green they had described unless they were worn by masqueraders because those colors were not used for any uniforms. Yeah. The two women did do research on whether anyone was filming or taking photos at the location that August, or if there were any events that might have had people in period dress. Yeah. But they were told no permissions were given for filming or events at that time. There was some photography done the month prior and after August, but the photographers allowed them to review the photographs and insisted none of them matched the attire they saw that day. That's so strange. And I just recalled uh, reading something about Miss Moberly determining that the man in the kiosk looked like a close acquaintance of Antoinette's. I believe she saw him in a painting with her but I don't recall the details on that, so. But that's it. That's all I got. That sounds crazy. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Yeah. I had never heard it before. I haven't heard it before either. I am curious, as you are talking about it, because you said they both had experiences. I wonder if there's ever been an instance where there are two people 
and only one of them has a time slip. Like, I know that's not, like, relevant to this story. Well, it kind of is. I mean, but it is interesting because if one person did, would then the one person disappear? Oh, that's a good question. Or would they both just be seeing the same thing in different periods? Kind of like the bookstore? Yeah. But in that case, it snapped back for both of them at the same time. I don't know. That's really interesting. Yeah, but other people were probably in the bookstore at the time. They probably thought they were crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, weird topic. Time travel is always a slippery slope. I guess that's why they call it time slips. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's it? Got anything else? I don't think so. Go get in line for Black Friday? No, I'm going back to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night.